Bob said, I'm, I'm Tobias, and I'm the director of adult discipleship here at CTK. And it's a privilege for me to get to open up God's word while Penny's away. This morning, we'll be looking at Psalm 133, which, as the title states, is a psalm of David. Now, we don't really know when he wrote this psalm. Unlike Psalm 63, uh, which Penny preached on a couple of Sundays ago, and whose title clearly sets it in the time when David was in the wilderness of Judah, this one doesn't provide us with a setting. A good guess, perhaps, would be that David wrote it when he was made king over both Judah and Israel after their long time of civil war. But whatever the circumstances surrounding its composition, it is true that it's a song of ascents. And this suggests that it was used especially by Jewish pilgrims. You see, according to Deuteronomy 16, three times a year, Israelites were expected to make their way to Jerusalem and there ascend the mountain of the Lord to worship him at his sanctuary. And this psalm, along with 14 others from Psalm 120 to 134, most likely formed a sort of travel hymnal for them. Now, I, I think sometimes we have a misconception about these psalms, imagining perhaps that the Israelites used them only on their journey toward Jerusalem, sort of like sanctified modern-day road trip tunes. You know, like John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt or whatever other never-ending song you belt out together as you try to pass the time. But perhaps a better understanding is that the Jews used them throughout their pilgrimage, even while they were in Jerusalem. Perhaps this is why some of the earlier psalms in this collection, like Psalm 120, for example, show the psalmist in distress and, and longing to be in Jerusalem. He's in a distant land. While some of the later psalms, like the one we're considering this morning, show him refreshed and at peace as he reflects back on his time spent in worship with the people of God. And so, taken this way, I think these songs of ascents as a collection have movement. They lead us as we read through them from despondency to hope. And as they do so, they encourage us to recognize and cherish the precious blessing of meeting together to worship God in the midst of a hostile world. Psalm 133 is a short, beautiful psalm, and we can learn much from it about what it means to live in brotherly uni unity. So let's go ahead and turn our attention to it now. If you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to use one of the ones in the chairs in front of you. Hear now the holy, inspired, and infallible word of the Lord our God. A song of ascents of David. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. 
Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Almighty God, we humble ourselves before you this morning, and we are so grateful, so grateful that you have given us your word. Oh Lord, we ask that you will make us sensitive to it today. Teach us by it what it means to live in brotherly unity. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Friends, let me begin this morning by asking you a question. What comes to mind when you think about spending time with the people of God, particularly in the context of corporate worship? What images rise to the surface? What emotions rise to the surface? Do you think of a sanctuary like this one? And is it a sweet and awesome place? Like we sing about in that beloved hymn by Isaac Watts. Do you leave each week filled with a sense of joy, love, and belonging? Does it refresh you and strengthen you to meet life's challenges? Or is worship for you with other believers wearisome? Does it fill you with a sense of anxiety or guilt or maybe even loneliness? Or perhaps if you're honest, corporate worship for you is sort of innocuous. Perhaps this morning you got into your car simply out of a sense of obligation and drove here anticipating very little good or bad. Brothers and sisters, as those who've gathered here this morning, indeed, as those who gather here each and every week to praise and worship our God and our King, how do we think about our time together? Well, Psalm 133 invites us to consider this question. You see, in this psalm, right from the beginning, David sets a pattern for us by taking time to reflect upon his own experience living amidst the people of God. Take a look at verse 1. Behold, he says, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Now, don't let the word brothers trip you up here. Doesn't ha David doesn't have in mind some exclusive boys club like his elite mighty men we read about in 2 Samuel 23. He's got all his kinsmen in mind here, brothers, fathers, mothers, sisters, children, most likely from both the northern and southern tribes. Indeed, he's thinking about all the, all the Israelites who had gathered together in Jerusalem for worship. And as he reflects on the rich fellowship they'd experienced, he calls it good and pleasant. Now, at first glance, there's nothing especially noteworthy about the words good and pleasant, is there? After all, they're commonplace words. They're used throughout the Old and New Testaments. But consider for a moment the first occurrence of the word good in the Bible. It's found in the creation account in Genesis 1. And there it repeatedly punctuates the narrative as God looks upon his creative activity at the end of each successive day and judges it good. And at the end of the account, as we see God surveying the whole of his handiwork with complete satisfaction, 
To top it off in verse 31, we read, Behold, it's very good. And really, this is just another way of saying that what he saw was right. The things he'd made were just as he had designed them to be. It's as if God were saying, yes, that's exactly what I had in mind. And you know, it's striking to me that just a bit later on in the narrative, we hear God saying in Genesis 2.18, it is not good for man to be alone. You see, he designed us for, for fellowship with one another. And friends, that's what we see David grasping right here at the beginning of the psalm. As he reflects on the harmonious fellowship of the people of God, he recognizes that this is what God had in mind for his people all along. And he calls it good. But he doesn't stop with good. He adds that it's pleasant. And we need to be careful not to skip over this word as if it's mere repetition. It's not. You see, this is a word that expresses our emotion at the sight of something beautiful. And this is why, for example, we hear the bridegroom using it in Song of Songs 7-6 when he finally catches sight of his approaching bride and with unbridled enthusiasm exclaims, how beautiful and delightful, same word, you are, my love, with all your charms. And so here, as David reflects on the unity of God's people, he doesn't just acknowledge intellectually that it's good. He has an emotional response to it. It gives him pleasure. Indeed, both his head and his heart are affected, and he cherishes it. And why shouldn't David cherish it? After all, he was painfully familiar with brotherly discord, wasn't he? Even before he was anointed king, his elder brother Eliab mocked him as arrogant and evil-hearted when he bravely stepped forward to challenge Goliath, while the rest of the Israelite soldiers cowered in fear. And, and think about how often we read in 1 Samuel of David's flights from Saul his fellow Israelite and king. He even had to flee from his own bloodthirsty son, Absalom, who tried to murder him and seize control of his kingdom. Yes, David was well acquainted with discord. And yet, lest we forget, David himself was no paragon of brotherly virtue, was he? Indeed, it was in this same holy city, in Zion, that he chose to sow his own seeds of discord when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and plotted the murder of her husband, Uriah. Friends, it is no wonder then that here in the midst of the sweet fellowship of the people of God, we hear David exclaim, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's as if he were saying, hey, take a look at this marvelous sight. Don't miss it. You don't see this every day, not in this world. But you know, David isn't the only one who knew something about familial discord. 
And we know something about it too, don't we? Indeed, even here in our own precious community at CPK, sin gets the upper hand, and the seeds of discord are sown among us. Perhaps we look around at our neighbors with discontent and secretly envy their prosperity or position. Perhaps we foolishly give in to gossip and say things about a friend that we know are unkind or untrue. Perhaps in our stubborn pride, we refuse to humble ourselves and ask forgiveness from a brother we know we've harmed. Or perhaps we've suffered an offense and in our self-righteous indignation, we're now determined to withhold our forgiveness. Brothers and sisters, whatever our struggles may be, inasmuch as we do these things to one another, this is not the way it's supposed to be. As those who've been bought by the same precious blood of Christ, we are a family. And disunity among God's children breaks his heart. Ask any parent, and they'll tell you that one of the most painful things to watch is fighting among their children. Isn't that true? Indeed, unity within the family of God was so important to our Lord Jesus that we see him in Matthew 5 commanding those experiencing disunity to lay aside their gifts even while on their way to the altar and to go and be reconciled with their brother before making their offering. Oh, how precious is the unity of God's people. David had tasted the sweet blessing of living in fellowship with his brothers, and he cherished it. Friends, what about you? Have you tasted it? Do you cherish meeting with the family of God? Do you know that God has made us for fellowship with one another and that he intends it for our own happiness? Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. But perhaps you're here today and you're thinking to yourself, okay, I can see that unity among God's people is good and pleasant. But what else can you tell me about it? What's it like? And in verses 2 and 3, David, perhaps anticipating this question, goes on to describe what it's like using two similes. Take a look at the first one he gives us in verse 2. He writes, It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. Surely someone in here is thinking, what? <laughs> the unity of believers is like oil running down some guy's beard? <laughs> this is a bizarre image. It's certainly not the first thing that pops into my mind to describe Christian fellowship. But consider for a moment the connections this would have triggered in the mind of the Israelites. In Exodus 30, we read that as the high priest who was Aaron was being consecrated for service, a luxuriously 
fragrant oil was poured over his head. And as this oil flowed downward, it would have seeped over his face and through his beard and down onto his priestly robe. And this anointing was a vivid picture for the Israelites that God had poured out his spirit upon Aaron and that his favor rested upon him. It was a solemn act, one that the Israelites revered intensely. And this is why, for example, we read in 1 Samuel 24 that David refused to stretch out his hand against Saul when he had the chance, even though Saul had acted so wickedly toward him. You see, Saul was the Lord's anointed. But what I think is especially noteworthy with regard to this psalm is that Aaron's robes, according to Exodus 28, had the names of the 12 tribes of Israel sewn onto its shoulders. And so as Aaron was being anointed for service, and as the holy oil was washing over him and filling the air with sweet perfume, the whole of Israel was at the same time symbolically being set apart and consecrated for service to the Lord. Indeed, it was a picture of the abundant outpouring of God's spirit and favor upon all his people. Brothers and sisters, this is what the unity of God's people was like for David. Like the oil, it was a symbol to all the world that God had graciously poured out his spirit upon them all. And this is why we read so often in the New Testament that disunity among believers cannot remain unchecked. For us, for those who confess together with the Apostle Paul, there is one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Disunity is at best a monstrous contradiction, but perhaps much worse. And you see, the Apostle John understood this. And this is why we hear him boldly saying in 1 John 4.20, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. And you know, the way we celebrate communion here at CPK provides us with a weekly opportunity to reflect in the family of God. Have you ever thought about that? Each week as we rise and file forward to come to the table, we're invited to consider our own interactions with and attitudes toward our brothers and our sisters. After all, the Apostle Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine, 29, saying, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Friends, in the context of the letter, what Paul has in mind especially is the body of Christ as it's made manifest in its members. Namely, you and me, the person to your right and the person to your left. 
And so for, for Paul to eat and drink and profess union with Christ while hating a brother was a sham. It makes a mockery of our union with Christ. Brothers and sisters, do you see how important our unity is? Do you recognize that it stands as a symbol to the watching world that God's spirit is graciously and abundantly at work in our lives? And because of this, do you know that there is no place for disunity among God's people? Indeed, it is like the precious oil running down. But David goes on to give us another picture of what the unity of God's people is like. Take a look at the first part of verse 3. He writes, It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Here again, I think David gives us a puzzling image, doesn't he? After all, where are these places, Hermon and Zion? And how does falling dew resemble brotherly unity? But consider this. Hermon is a mountain far away in the northernmost regions of the Promised Land. Rising over 9,000 feet, it's the highest mountain in Syria and visible as far away as the Dead Sea. And although it's blanketed with snow most of the year, below the snow line, it's lush with vegetation because of the enormous amount of precipitation it receives. And the Israelites were well aware of this, and they revered it. Indeed, for them, its verdant slopes gave testimony to the bounty of God's goodness. And this is why we hear the psalmist proclaim in Psalm 89, 12, that Mount Hermon shouts for joy at God's name. This, however, is not the case with Zion. Indeed, Zion, which is another name for Jerusalem, the city of David, although it too rests on a mountaintop, it is anything but lush. It's a rocky and desolate place. And it requires constant irrigation to produce any vegetation at all. In fact, the word Zion itself probably means parched ground. You can imagine then, that as the Jewish pilgrims gathered together to worship in the sweltering heat of Jerusalem, they longed for refreshment. But there's a problem with the imagery. You see, Hermon is over a hundred miles from Jerusalem. How on earth can Zion be refreshed by these waters? And so I'd like to suggest to you that here, David's imagery is hypothetical. It's as if he were saying, now, we all know that the dew of Hermon doesn't actually fall on Zion. But brothers, in this dry and desolate place, wouldn't it be amazing if it did? And this is a perfectly acceptable way of taking this verse. Notice how the NIV translation renders it. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. Brothers and sisters, this is what unity, the unity of God's people was like for David. It was longed for, unexpected, and sumptuous refreshment for those who are weary. 
Some of you may know that I grew up in Colorado in the shadow of the mighty Rocky Mountains, Purple Mountain Majesty. But when I was 10, our family moved away from this kid's paradise to California. And we didn't move to a pleasant region like one you might find in the north or south, but we moved to L.A. We moved to Anaheim, the concrete jungle. And if that isn't enough to bring you to tears, perhaps this will. You see, I'll never forget what I experienced as a fifth grader one day at school. As I was playing outside during recess, all of a sudden, the sound of a siren came screeching over our heads, and we were all vigorously ushered in by the teachers. Do you know what it was? It was a smog alert. Apparently, the already inferior air had gotten so thick with pollution that it was unsafe for us to continue breathing it. Can you imagine? Some of you may actually have experienced these things, but I hadn't. And I can tell you that for this John Denver reared, Rocky Mountain High loving boy, this experience was a massive letdown. <laughs> and at that moment, I longed to feel, once again, the crisp, pure, refreshing breeze of the Rockies. Brothers and sisters, this is what God intends for our fellowship. It's to be for us an oasis in a dry and weary land. David had experienced this, and he cherished it. And this psalm gives testimony to the depth of the refreshment he'd enjoyed, living in unity with the people of God. Such refreshment that he could say, even in the midst of parched Jerusalem, it is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. What a delectable picture of the fellowship of God's people. Well, as we turn our attention to the end of verse 3, I want you to notice the way David redirects our focus as he closes the psalm. He writes, For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Did you notice the shift? You see, at the beginning of the psalm, David's attention is directed horizontally on God's people. He's looking around at his brothers and sisters, and he's rightly glorying in their unity. But here, he's turned his attention away from them, and away from his beautiful pictures of brotherly unity, and he's turned it onto Zion itself. There, he says, the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. It's as if he were saying, yes, brothers, our unity is a glorious Thing. It's like the oil of Aaron. It's like the dew of Hermon. But more than these things, it's a foretaste of everlasting life. It's a blessed gift from our Heavenly Father, and it's found right here. Brothers and sisters, we need to grasp the significance of what he's saying. You see, as Americans who prize our independence, 
as those who oftentimes approach the Christian life with a sort of sola bootstrap of stoicism. I think there are particular temptations for us either to grossly undervalue the power of Christian fellowship or to trust to ourselves to make it be what it's supposed to be. And so we end up saying things like, you know, I go to church mainly for the teaching. And I suppose the singing's pretty good, but I don't really go to meet people. That's not really what it's for. Besides, that sounds messy. Or on the other hand, we say, yes, I see how wonderful true Christian fellowship is, and I want it. How can I make it happen? Brothers and sisters, this is foolishness. And David understood it. He recognized that we might be tempted as we face life's challenges. Either to go it alone, either out of a sense of pride or perhaps even unworthiness, or to try and bring about brotherly unity by our own design and through our own effort. And so here he redirects our focus off of ourselves and onto Zion, toward God's sanctuary, and ultimately onto the person of Jesus Christ. Because it's there, it's in him, God's true sanctuary, that God has commanded his blessing, life forevermore. You see, long ago, God said through his prophet in Isaiah 28, 16, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Brothers and sisters, this precious stone in Zion is Jesus. And it's only as we direct our focus onto him and what he alone has done that we will ever enjoy true brotherly unity and the blessing of God, life evermore. Indeed, this is why we hear the Apostle Peter saying in 1 Peter 2, 4 through 6, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a royal priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, how glorious is this work of God. What a blessing it is to find true fellowship in the grace of our Lord. So what's this sort of fellowship look like? What does it mean for us to live in brotherly unity here at CTK. Well, I hope it means that we are involved in one another's lives, don't you? And we're going to celebrate life's joys, and we're going to weep at life's sorrows together. It means we're going to be patient with one another and listen well. We're going to be vulnerable about our struggles and our burdens, and we're going to bear them as a family. It means we're going to hold on to the truth of God's word vigorously, 
and challenge one another to take every thought captive to the word of Christ. It means we're going to forgive freely. And we're going to ask for forgiveness quickly. It means we're not going to forsake meeting together each and every week to worship our God and our King. And brothers and sisters, in all these things and so many more, it means we're going to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the precious cornerstone, ever mindful of our own sin and inability and trusting that it is God who has joined us together and who is now growing us into a holy temple in the Lord. Perhaps you're here today and you've never experienced fellowship like this. And you see how good it is and you want to be part of it, but you've never met the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, I want you to know that he offers himself freely for you here today. He says, come. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Friends, will you come to him? Will you in your weakness and in the poverty of your sin turn to him? Will you trust in his saving grace alone? and enter into blessed fellowship with the people of God. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Let's pray. Almighty God, what a picture. What a picture of the blessing of unity that you have designed for your people. Lord, we ask you now to make us into the people you have designed us to be. And we pray this in the mighty name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.